book. You are reading it along with us. Uh, I know that it's not the easiest read in the world, but I'm telling you, it's one of those reads when you read it all at the end, you're going to be so much uh, better off because of it and growing in our theology of Jesus. And I'm really excited to look with you at the second week of our message series. And we're looking at chapters seven and nine, answering the question, how does Jesus meet us in our sinfulness. Now that word sin is a very loaded word, especially in our culture. Now if you were to go up to somebody inside the church or outside the church and say, hey, tell me what you think about sin. What's a definition that you would think of? It would definitely vary amongst different people. Maybe that's because of what they've encountered in their church experience, uh, what they feel that Christians make them feel, how Christians have interpreted the word. Whatever that is, many of us have different views of what sin is. And so what I thought we would do this morning is start by looking at three different ways that oftentimes we view sin. The first is what I'll call the moral view. And if you belong in the moral view category, your catchphrase would be, I am a good person. What it means is, hey, I don't really believe in sin because that's pretty extreme. Now, I know I'm not perfect. We're all not perfect. I'm flawed. But I wouldn't go so far as say I'm a sinner because I'm just trying to be a good person. At the end of the day, as long as I'm a good person, that's what God expects. And that's what I'm trying to attain. So that would be the first uh, category we look at. Now, on the other side of that, the other extreme would be the shame-filled view, which says I am the worst person ever. I talked to somebody yesterday after the service who just was really struggling, and through tears she goes, that's, that's me. I, I just feel like God won't forgive me, or what I've done wrong, I feel like I have to carry it around. There's many of us that feel that way, where if we believe there's a God, we believe that he forgives everybody else, but he certainly can't forgive me because of what I've done or what I'm doing in my life. And so you believe that you have to carry your shame and your guilt around like penance to God pain for what you had to do. Many people fall into that category. The third category that I think a lot of times I fall into, and many Christ followers do, and honestly, I believe it's one of the most dangerous categories to fall in, is what we'll call the hypocritical view. And this says, I am better than others. Now, most of us, hopefully, aren't walking around and saying to people, hey, and you introduce yourself, I'm Eric, and I'm better than you. If you're doing that, we need to talk towards it. You're being really rude. <laughs> but how many people, how many of us think that? When we see somebody, we give them a number, man, those people, and what they're going through, their sin is like a seven or an eight. I'm just glad I'm like a three. <laughs> we look down on people. Even though God looks at sin equally, we rank it. And even though we don't say it, we look down on people. We're superior. We think we're better than people. And what's hypocritical is we forget that we are the same person. We just struggle with something differently. And the problem with this is that many outside the church, when they see Christians, they see our lives and they recognize, oh man, God is a judge. But we forget to also herald that God is a God of love and grace. So my question is, what category would you find yourself falling in? And if you're like me, maybe you jump in and out of different categories. What if I told you that every category that we talked about so far is wrong? It's not biblical. 
Neither of these three categories are found in the scriptures. We may feel like these are the right thing, or we have found ourselves to uh, be in one of these categories because that's how we look at the world or we view God, but that's not how God views sin. And so what we want to do today is not only do we want to see what the scriptures have to say about sin, but most importantly, what is God through Jesus, what's he done with our sin? So to be able to understand where we're at, we have to have a working definition that I think hopefully all of us would agree on. And this definition of sin is biblical. If you look at the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament, the Greek scriptures, which is the New Testament, they define sin the same exact way. And a biblical definition of sin is simply missing the mark. This is a term that we take from archery, where you are trying to hit the target, especially in the bullseye, but no matter how many times you sling your arrows, you're always missing that center bullseye. That's what the definition of sin is, missing the center. But the center of what? What is that bullseye? Well, St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians ever in Christendom, he puts it this way. Missing that center mark, that bullseye, is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. Which simply means we can't hit the bullseye because all the things we think, all the things we feel, all the things we say, all the things we do, they aren't perfect. And if God is perfect, obviously we aren't. And I don't think I have to convince you that none of us are perfect. When we think of words or deeds that we do, if I compiled a list to say murder or um, anything else in that category, we would probably say, yeah, that's sin. But the problem is when we think of missing the mark and we think missing perfection, we oftentimes focus on what we say or what we do, but we don't focus on why we do it. Have you ever asked yourself, like, I say these things, I do these things, I think these things, but why? I don't want to. But I can't stop. What's at the heart of that? Well, we find the answer early in Scripture. God, he's trying to settle the first sibling argument in history. And he's trying to talk Cain out of murdering his brother Abel. And as God goes to warn Cain about not murdering his brother, he puts it this way in Genesis 4, verse 6. He says, why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. And then God tells us why we oftentimes refuse to do what is right. Look what the rest of verse 7 says. Sin is crouching at the door, the door of your hearts, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. So God goes to Cain and says, look, sin is knocking at your door. And if you let it in, there are going to be consequences. Well, Cain didn't listen to God. He decided that he wanted to do what he thought was right. And what does he do? He murders his brother Abel. Now, let me quiz you for a moment. What was the sin in the story? If you said murder... You would be right, but only half right. It's a trick question. Here's the question. What was sin? The answer was murder, but what preceded murder? The desire to murder. 
What was at the heart of the desire to murder? Wanting to be God. Wanting to determine what is right and wrong in his eyes. Wanting to determine who calls the shots. Wanting to determine who's in control. That's what's at the heart of sin. So often we focus on what we do. We should be asking ourselves why we do it in the first place. It's that sin. It's that desire to be God that's knocking on each of our doors. And if we open that door, watch out. Murder ensues. And you may say, well, I've never murdered anybody, either have I, but how many of us have murdered people with our words, with our actions, with our lack of forgiveness? So many things that we do in relationships, fracture relationships, because sin has been knocking on the door, and we just allow it to come in. It not only murders relationships, it murders our relationship with God. God is perfect. We aren't And as a result, there's this huge gap, this huge chasm that comes between our relationship with God. I heard someone say this recently, and it was so good. I was so jealous that I didn't say it because I'm not smart enough, but I'll bring it to you anyways. This guy, his name is um, Johnny Moore. He's a pastor, and if you're writing notes, I'd write this down. It's that good. Sin thrills, and then it kills. It fascinates And then it assassinates. Is that not true? Think of the moment where the desire takes over, where it's knocking on the door of our hearts and we let it in. It is thrilling. It is fascinating. There is something intoxicating about being God. But how many of us, when we look behind us at the trail of destruction in our own lives, in our relationships with others, in our relationship with God that happens when we take the bait, when we open the door. It thrills, but it quickly, it kills. It fascinates, but it quickly assassinates. So if that is true, and we have a problem, and there's this gap between God and us, now the question remains, what ought to happen? We call this God's conundrum. What should God do with us Obviously, we're choosing to let our desires control us and then we live and act in such a way that's destructive. What ought God do with that? This is why we need to turn to Hosea chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Hosea chapter, seven verse, chapter 11, excuse me, verses 7 through 9. In the Old Testament, it is what we call a prophetic book. If you're new to scripture, a prophetic book is when God decided to talk to his people, the Israelites, and he chose a person to speak through. So he's speaking through this messenger to address his people. Now, sometimes when you read the prophetic books, you read, oh, okay, God's happy with his people. They're doing the right thing. Most of the time, that's not what's going on. God is saying, what are you doing? Why are you living this way? Why are you being unfaithful? Why do you continue to allow sin knock on the door of your hearts and you let it in? That's exactly what happens in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. And we see this conundrum of God wanting a relationship with his people, but his people not wanting a relationship with him. Here's what it says, Hosea chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give up on you, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboam? 
My heart is torn within me in my compassion. It overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. Here's what's going on. God's saying to his people, look, I want a relationship with you. That's why I created you. The most important thing in your lives are a relationship with me. Everything else is icing on the cake. I want a relationship with you. I created you to have an intimate, ongoing, personal relationship. But the problem is you continue to go back on your word, on your word to have a relationship with me. We made a covenant here. You play your part, I'll play my part. It's going to be great, but you're not holding up to your end. And the way Hosea describes this is, verse 7, he says, For my people are determined to desert me. How are God's people deserting God? How are they turning their back on God? They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Now this is fascinating. The Israelites know that God exists. They know he is Yahweh. They know he is King. They know he is Lord. They know he is Creator, but... They are determining not to follow him. They are not honoring him. Which means even though they know that God is or God is these are these things, at the end of the day, they don't live as if they're true. They look at God as a genie. God, give me what I want. And even if you don't give me what you want or what I want, I'm still gonna go my way. They live as if God exists, but God doesn't lead their lives. And that's a huge distinction. I mean, how many of us do that? Think about it. I was reflecting on something the other day. I can't believe I'm going to confess this to you. I'm a pastor. Duh. I work at a church, right? Okay, that's obvious. Here's what stinks about that. The other day, I went through my entire day. I even worked that day, again, working in a church. And I came to the end of the day, and I thought to myself, I didn't think about God one time today. That's really hard to confess as a pastor, but it's true because I'm just one of you. I mean, if you'd have come up to me, tell me about Jesus. I could tell you everything about Jesus. I could show you all my books that make me look smart. I can pray. I can, I can come to church. I can give. But I didn't even give one thought of Jesus leading my life that whole day. That's what Hosea is saying here. You can believe in God. You can know that he created you. You can have the right theology. You can have all of these things in place. But is he leading your life? No. Why? Because you and I, we want to lead our own lives. That's at the heart of sin. When's the last time throughout the day, other than a Sunday morning, where you thought, God, lead my life? I'm cognizant of you being the Lord of my life. Isn't it so easy to claim that we know God, but... When we look at our lives, there's not evidence of that. I know I can say that. And that's the problem with sin. It will always, always thrill you. It will fascinate you. It will tell you, you are God, you're in control. And then we find out really quickly when we try to be God, we do a really bad job of it. And this is God's conundrum. My people want to be God. My people, they want what I can give them, but they're not truly living for me. What should I do? That's why when we read in verse 8, it starts by saying, my heart is torn within me. What's torn within him is, i got to do something about sin, because my people keep making a mess of their lives. The only way that something can be done is if I intervene. But look how they're treating me. They continue to turn their backs on me. They want nothing to do with me. 
I mean, if you were in a relationship with someone and they just used you and abused you and took advantage of you and just wanted what you could give them and never wanted this relationship, what would you do? You'd walk away and everyone would say, good job, about time. We could say that about God. We could say, God, why don't you just walk away? We're really doing a good job of messing everything up here. You're pretty perfect. Why don't you just go do your thing? Just leave us alone. God can't do that. That's the conundrum here. He has to do something about it. He knows. And so we read following that his heart is torn within me that my compassion overflows. If you were here last week, we learned that compassion simply means Jesus always taking the first step towards us and never away from us. That he is humble and gentle, but he's also compassionate. That even though we walk away from him, even though we go to our favorite hiding spots, even when we don't think about him throughout the week, he still makes the first move towards us. And God said, I love my people so much that I'm going to make the first move. My people are on this side. I'm on this side. I'm going to have to bridge the gap because they can't. It's too wide. They're imperfect. They've missed the mark. So I have to do something about it. And that's why when Paul, the Apostle Paul, he discovers what God has done, he can't stop writing about it. And one of the ways that we see Paul reflecting on what God has chosen to do, we see this in the book of Romans. As he's writing to this group of Christians in Rome, he puts it this way in what God has done with them. He says this, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Dane Ortland, he puts it this way, and I love this. He goes, what father, what good father at least, could bring himself to put up for adoption his beloved son just because his son messed up so big? I mean, some of us in this room, we're ready to sign an adoption paper tonight. I'm like, get out of here, go somewhere else. But at the end of the day, if you're a good parent, you know that you can't stop loving your child, no matter what mistakes they make, no matter what choices they make. In the end, why can't you stop loving them? Because they're yours. And you will do whatever it takes to make the first move to your child so they can recognize, even though they mess up, they have never messed up enough to lose the love that you have for them. That's what God does in Christ. We see in this passage here, we see how damaging sin can be. We see what it does. It can rule. It can entice. It has a a vice grip on our hearts. But Jesus says, though your sin is great, my grace is more. You cannot out-sin more than God's grace is for you. You you can't do more bad things and think, well, that's going to outpace God's grace. It can't. It's the opposite. God's love always outpaces God's or our sin. That's why Tim Keller says grace is doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. What couldn't we do for ourselves? We could hit the mark. We shoot our arrows all around and we may get real close to the bullseye, but we can't hit it. Jesus says, I'll hit it for you. Grace is Jesus coming and living perfectly. 
Jesus' grace is coming and obeying God perfectly. God's grace through Jesus is him dying on the cross for our sin, our shame, our guilt, all that we've done. Grace is Jesus then raising from the dead, defeating sin and death forever. Grace is Jesus taking that, even though we did nothing right, he gives us his righteousness. He credits us what he has done. Even though he was perfect and we're not, because of Jesus, in God's eyes, we are perfect. That chasm that was there between God and us, it's gone because of the cross. That's what grace is. That's why it's so important to understand that it's our sin that leads to death. Again, I don't have to tell you the death that sin brings. When we live selfishly, it feels good in the moment, but how many of us have made absolute poor choices and hurt people because we want to be God. And that damages our relationships with others. So many of us can change our relationships today forever if we just stop trying to control and stop trying to be God. But when we don't, it will kill our relationships. And of course, it kills our relationship with God. But that's why grace is more. God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us the right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If sin brings death, Christ brings life. Life for you and me. That phrase, right standing with God, is an identity phrase. All of us are searching for who we are and why we're here. And all of us try to find it in other people or other things. God says through Christ, I will give you an identity of being my child, my son and daughter, And that's going to change you from the inside out. And when it does, it'll change your relationships. How? We all want to be loved. But when you're in Christ, even though you may not be loved, you can still give love without strings attached. Why? Because you're getting it all from God first. You don't have to find it in somebody else. You and I can go around serving people and not expecting to be served back. Why? Because Jesus, we know, has served us entirely and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So why can't we just give that to the other people? Of course, it brings us life with God. Life here as we interact with him, and then life after death as we spend eternity with him. Our sin is great, but his grace is more. Aren't you grateful for that this morning? Erwin Lutzer, he puts it this way. We'll never know the sweetness of grace unless we understand the bitterness of sin. If you understand how bitter sin really is, you're going to understand even more how sweet grace is. And then it changes our views. For instance, you don't have to be a moral person because none of us are good. But Jesus was good. You don't have to spend your life trying to hit the bullseye. Jesus hit the bullseye. All you have to do is rest in his performance and put your archery gun away or bow and arrow, whatever you guys call it, for good. I'm not a shooter, so I don't know how to say that, but that's what I mean. (laughs) You don't have to walk around saying I'm the worst person in the world. Too many of us are defined by what we've done wrong and we carry it around like we're supposed to, like we can't be forgiven, like we can't have a new start in Christ. And when we do that, I promise you, you are spitting in the face of Jesus. For Jesus has done so much more than what our sin has done to us. You don't have to walk around 
beaten up and thinking you're the worst person ever. No, 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 no. Jesus looks at you and says, I love you. I want you. And then Christ followers, if you're here and you walk around thinking you're better than others, and I know I can do this as well. The last time I checked, at the base of the cross, the ground is equal. There are no steps. There are no rankings. We are all equal at the cross. And I think if we really understood that even though people may make choices we disagree with, but at the end of the day, if we understand we're in the same boat as they are, and it's by grace that we have a new lease on life, then I wonder those who want nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with church may start to want to come because they see grace and not death in our lives. They experience love and not judgment because why should we judge others when A, Jesus says not to, and B, Jesus took on God's judgment anyways. We have grace. Let's be grace dispensers to the world as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross and thank you for the resurrection. How often I just get used to that, but it is reality. Thrill us, God, by the renewal of our minds and our hearts as we ponder the depths and breadths of your grace. How though my sin and my shame are so great, your grace and your love for me is more, God. Help us to live in that truth. Help us to know that no matter what we do, we are your child. You can't walk away from us. And so you brought Jesus down for us. Help us to live in him and help us to live for him. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Stand with me. And would you uh, stay, say this passage of scripture with me? This is our benediction. May we take on Jesus' invitation as we end our time together. Say it with me. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If you want to be prayed for, have a seat. Everybody else, if you could just exit quietly, have a great Sunday.